All right. Well, guys, we're recording this on International Women's Day, and I couldn't think of a better guest to have than Mei Chow. She is the chef owner behind some of Hong Kong's most creative restaurants, including Little Bao and Happy Paradise. She was also named Asia's Best Female Chef in 2017 and has done pop-ups here in the U.S. with the team behind Republic, which garnered lines snaked around Grand Central Market. But let me tell you, those bow were absolutely worth it. I'm happy I stuck it out. My team and I were lucky to film with her for my Women in Food series last time we were in Hong Kong, and I was so inspired not only by her delicious take on traditional bows, but her activism and leadership. Today, we're going to be talking about the restaurant scene in Hong Kong and how she hopes to uplift women as well as fellow members of the LGBTQ community in Hong Kong and beyond. Thanks for joining us, May. I'm so happy to be here and so good to see you. It's so good to see you too. Oh my gosh. I mean, I miss those days, you know, recording with you was such a treat. The food was so freaking good. Oh my God. I feel like we're kind of on the horizon of getting back to that place though, where maybe we can actually see each other IRL. You know, it's interesting. Like the other day for the first time, I was collecting all this like photos and things I've done before. And literally I was just looking at the Republic photos and those lines. And I was like, wow, I was so busy for the past seven, eight years that I didn't actually look back. And so I always feel like I didn't do enough. You know, like I always felt like, oh, I didn't, seems like I didn't do much. And I look back at those photos, it's like, oh, I was pretty proud. Like, wow, like, you know, we really did a lot. Every single of those events were really meaningful to me. And 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 being able to kind of sit back and digest what we've done for like the past 10 years and then moving forward, you know, I see that as a blessing in disguise, you know. That's right. I feel like those photo memories in my iPhone, I look at them every day now, which I never did before. Yeah. And it's giving me a new sense of appreciation for all of the incredible people I've gotten to meet along the way, all those amazing things that we've done. But that day was really special. I mean, I was, you know, in line right behind Charles Alalia from sadly the now shuttered Mamser. I'm sure he's going to find another place. But it was really cool just to see everybody turn out like that. How did that collaboration materialize? You know, that's the amazing thing. I believe a huge part of seeding things, right? I met Walter years ago in Hong Kong. So he came to Little Bao. He loved it. Then we had a catch up. And then I took him to a restaurant called 22 Ships. So this was probably five, six years ago. And if you don't know, Walter actually is a restaurant mogul down in Manila, Philippines. He like does this flower uh, restaurant. And so when I went to, uh, I was invited to Manila uh, by another group of restaurateurs. And then of course, Flower and the crew there like took great care of me. And ever since every time I go to LA, I would say hello. So you know how hectic and busy they are. I don't know how they do that kind of volume and that size of a restaurant. It's like running, you know, a little town in there. So he asked me like, hey, do you want to, we want to do a pop-up with Sorry Sorry's concept. So just come by. And I love him so much. He's such a, that couple is just, they're amazing. They're, they're amazing team. They're, they treat their staff so well. They believe in what they do. And, you know, they planted that, you know, in, in Asia, some things are a little bit dated back, like in terms of service and quality of breads and things. They brought it to Manila way early. I'm so impressed by them. So we did that pop-up. They did such a great job taking care of us. I go to LA all the time, but I took my staff there. And then I was, we were like making bows. And then they're like, you know, Usher? And we were in the kitchen. So I was like, Usher, like, is that your, like, who's that in your kitchen crew? Like, who's Usher? It's like, no, no, no. Like, Usher, Usher. I'm like, 
Oh, like <laughs> like you make me wanna. <laughs> I like, oh, I was like, like the the rapper, the musician, uh, like Usher, Usher. I was like, okay. I, I was like, okay, okay. I was like, and then I went to my staff, who was like from Hong Kong. I was like, yo, Usher's outside having like lunch, you know. And then I, I was there. How did I miss this? No, in Republic, in Republic. As we were making bows, and then I just think it's so LA, and I just laughed, and because I, I was like thinking Usher, oh, because I'm like making bows like in the kitchen. They're like, oh. Oh, I was like, is is that your sushi? <laughs> yeah. Don't let me get over here. I need some help. <laughs> it is such an LA moment. I, I actually live very close to Republic, and that's like where I'd take lunch meetings or breakfast meetings all the time during the week. It was still really busy. You'd still have to wait in line, but it wasn't the snaking around the corner for a Sunday brunch. And you would always see the best people in there. Everybody was always so well dressed. It was just like great people watching, which I really miss. It's just great food, great energy. Like that energy crosses from like the staff to the team and to the belief in the founders, and and you can just really feel it in the space. And I think that anyone who just just really feels like what great hospitality that you know LA offers, and and I just really think it's such a good you know standard to follow. That's right. Everything they do, like top down. I mean, the bar program's incredible. I mean, down to the last little berry on top of every tartlet. It's just, yeah, it's incredible. I miss that spot a lot. They've been kind of doing some outdoor dining. I frankly have not been doing as much outdoor dining just because I'm paranoid and playing it really safe. (laughs) But um, I cannot wait until I get my vaccine and I can go out and and pay them a visit because they're just, they are really incredible. Imagine now sneaking through the lines, like how you would feel today. Like if you saw a line inside Grand Central Market, like that feeling might be different, right? You don't know how you feel in a crowded space. The mindset changes a little bit. Of course, we'll heal and move forward. But I don't know if I can go into a club anymore. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could go to <laughs> Is that us getting older speaking now? I'm like, oh, shit, this is late 30s. And do I really want to go to the club? I don't know if I really liked it all that much anyway. Uh, <laughs> But I do miss dancing with friends. I do really miss dancing. I miss live music. Oh, my God. I miss the bars, especially the bars in Hong Kong were so incredible. Oh, my God. Hong Kong is all about tight spaces. That's what I celebrate and love. And so when they said 50% capacity and my friend had like 15 seats, it's like, what are they supposed to do? And it's like so tiny, right? Like imagine the original little bow is like 300 square feet and you try to fit 20 people in there. And then they're like, well, now you have 150 square feet and then like, good luck. You're like, uh, 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 they wouldn't have survived based on that notion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I know the team at Black Sheep Finds was really integral in creating this roadmap that got circulated globally. It was kind of a, a COVID protocols opening roadmap that they created. And I know that so many of us were looking to Hong Kong and, Asia in general, but specifically Hong Kong, I feel like really was rigorous about the way that that you guys reopened. It was kind of like a window into the future, seeing what would happen. So what's happening there now? So we can kind of take a, a cue from you guys, hopefully. What are you seeing out there right now? The reason that we're so well prepared too, from the community. So we weren't waiting for actions from the government. Like the government much later enforced rules into the, the system, but I can tell you, like, for example, in wave one or two, my security guard would put bleach uh, mats outside the door, soaked, so that our shoes would not be contaminated walking in. He did that out of his own common sense. And this is because we had, you know, we dealt with, you know, SARS and things before that led to this kind of knowledge. So 
even before like people would wear masks if they were sick, even five years ago, like they would not take an MTR and be, if you've coughed in public and you didn't wear a mask, people would look at you like, why are you so irresponsible? You know? So that was already our set point. So now dialing to now, um, there are some rules that are kind of interesting because now say, for example, it's a little gray because if you had a divider, it's a 1.5 meter distancing, but if you had a divider, they, it wouldn't apply. So you could have these d- dividers built in. But I think the sentiment is that people really want to go out, like people really want to eat. And it's interesting because when people didn't want to go out, the first people that they wouldn't take out is maybe their kids or their parents or, you know, things like that, because they want to be safe, be responsible for their family. So back then, if our families had young children, those people would not go out to dinner. It's way of thought. People are like, okay, you know what? I'm just going out. And so the scene has been very active. People have been very celebratory. People really miss dining. So this whole idea that like the whole world just wants to live off of takeaway, like it's not true. People want to dive right back in into engagement and wanting to talk and wanting to meet their friends and things like that. So uh, right now we have tables of fours. So we always have to pivot. For example, my menu, the bigger plates are meant to be shared for four people. The moment two people came in, we instantly designed sets for two. Like, how do we make this family-style sharing, which is a very large Chinese concept, to become accessible for two tops? Because traditional Chinese restaurants are failing because it's a 400-seat restaurant. They do parties of 10 to 12. They do huge weddings. So all of that revenue is lost, and they haven't been able to recoup. Because if you're, like, looking for a dinner for two, you don't think large Chinese banquet halls. That's just not going to happen because even their portions are meant for four to six people. So two people, you're like, well, I want to eat six things. How can I order? So being able to understand the rules and then design creatively what it applies to your restaurant, I think is really crucial. And then I think communication is really crucial. For example, when things pivot from just 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., I actually wanted to order delivery, but all the fine dining restaurants, of course, immediately stopped delivery. So then, oh, I, then that that channel, business channel stops and then, but if wave five happens, then they have to restart again. I think that stopping and restarting actually really affects the flow. I think that people in Hong Kong, what I've seen that made us really resilient is keep the takeaway. If shit happens, you have the base, you know, not like, oh, I believe that this time will be the last time. We never know. It's like we're wave five. We're so vigilant. And the moment we jump, we're like talking about 20 cases in a city of 7 million people, 20 cases, they want to shut us down. If it rides up to 60, we, we close immediately. So we have to be super vigilant. And what's happened recently is that the ventilation systems have to be updated. It's important to be vigilant. And even us being this mindful, it still happens. It's not like, oh, now it's a little bit better and you take off your mask. So I think that's something that people should know now. Right. As much as vaccines will come and we still have to be mindful that you think that free fall is over? Actually, it's not that the free fall is over. It's more like you know how the free fall feels like. So don't rip out. You're like, oh, life is back to normal. I'm going to take away my parachute. And then you're like, oh, shit. I, like, where did I throw that mask? I like, find it. It must be inside the basement. Don't do that. Just have it. Oh, I will always have a mask and I will always have a all these business channels. Do frozen food. Do Increase your business channels so that you can make sure that your staff has a job 
and then vice versa, like diners, being mindful not to be reckless, like book tables of, you know, 20 people and pretend that you're five separate tables is not going to do anyone any good. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. You know, hearing you say that, I think that your mindset and your eye for creativity and innovation, which has been very much what your restaurant is built off of, like it's these traditional Cantonese bao, a little sandwiches sort of in a way, almost like a Chinese burger. It's an innovative take on something that's traditional, right? So you're constantly, you you are yourself, someone who's innovating, you're agile, right? In that. So I think that someone like yourself and, and our generation, I would even say, is just so used to, okay, let's create. I loved hearing what you said about the two person share plates, because, you know, I was looking back in my photos for Lunar New Year, and we'd gone out to this beautiful dim sum house out in the San Gabriel Valley, and there were 10 of us and all the chopsticks in the center of the table, and we're, you know, squished together elbow to elbow. And I miss that way of eating. And I sometimes look at those pictures, and I'm like, well, that's a thing of the past. It's gone, like, just kind of, you know, enjoy that for what it was. But it sounds like there are ways to bridge that gap if you're thinking creatively. Yeah, you have to change. Chinese restaurants are known for big round tables. And to be honest, this has been an issue with Chinese restaurants for a long time. First of all, the restaurant brigade is very separated. So for example, in my worst case scenario, I can be in a kitchen and I can serve 20 people because I can take care of everything. But if you look at Chinese restaurants, they have to do dim sum, the wok, and then they have fresh butcher fish and there's a steamer guy. So you always need like 10 minimum people to take care of the whole restaurant. That's why Chinese restaurants are so huge because they need to justify that kitchen. So then they're talking about rounds and they have when Chinese New Year's come, if they don't have huge families booking out these banquets, they don't actually make money. Or if anything, they're bleeding money. What I see is like, for example, for actually why it's slightly outdated and you see new Chinese concepts that take a more um, Western thought process is that the family dynamic has changed. So people maybe 50 years ago had four to six children And so when you go out for CNY, it's like you have 36, 48 people. Now families only have one child, maybe two. So a family dynamic is actually four. People think about changing. This is the time where they force you to change. There were issues anyways, is now just in your face explosion. And so instead of, oh, like the good old days, maybe I can change some of my tables to small four top tables, two top tables. But if two people come in to dine at a Chinese restaurant, which I love to, I want my dishes to be tapa size. I don't want to eat a whole picking duck. Like that's, but can I have half? How can I have half? Figure out like a system where I can have half, but it still needs to be fresh to order. Somehow you make it happen. And I think people need to, people that didn't think about that wave one, I think really regret it. I think that we talked to, you know, more traditional Chinese restaurateurs. The moment we said food panda delivery, they were like, no, 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 no. That's not our kind of business. And then by wave four, five, they did it. And it was like, and then they come calling me. They're like, what about that delivery? I was like, it's a wave five. Like, seriously? Like, <laughs> now you're trying to get on this? Come like, on. Like, we're talking about reopening over here. It's not even pivot. It's like pivot faster. Learn faster. Makes mistakes. And what we've learned is what we developed in wave two didn't really come to. We think about it. Like, like wave two, we were like, okay, we need to do delivery. But until wave four, like three months later, we're like, wait, we're seeing results to this. It's really growing. People are getting used to ordering from us. And they think about us every time they do delivery. 
And so even when you want to do it, the result comes in three to four months. So your survival is, even if you decide now, can you survive another three to four months to see it make fruit for you, right? And so those are things that we need to think about all the time. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right? I feel like so often we want that instant gratification where you plant the seed and then the fruit grows the next day. It's like, well, that's not how it works. <laughs> it takes time to grow. And to your point, I guess to further that analogy, you have to water it every day. And if you're to, you know, to be starting and stopping delivery and starting and stopping with new programs and starting and stopping indoor and then not indoor and then outdoor and then no, no, no. You know, it's like, you got to just kind of stick to the plan and believe in the process. And I do hope that those traditional restaurants some of them at least are able to reopen because it is a huge, rich part of the Cantonese culinary history, especially. And part of the reason why we love coming out there to dine is the innovative stuff you are doing, but also that history and those legacy restaurants, you know? I think what we, I, I see as those restaurants are so important and there's so many restaurants that are great restaurants like Sam and LA that are amazing and they're dying. And I was just talking to my friends in, in China and in Shanghai and they were saying that as much as they have no lockdown within China, but ever since they've uh, closed the borders, the quality of interesting restaurants have stopped because it's the day-to-day stuff that kind of survives financially and in a business set point. So all those destination restaurants, I would only go there once in a lifetime. Those restaurants are really suffering and and they close down. And so then you end up like in Hong Kong right now, it's crazy. If I could compare it like Tesla stock in US and then coffee shops in Hong Kong, the amount of coffee shops are opening is insanity. But crazy enough, there's lines out the door at every coffee shop because locals understand it. They love the coffee culture. It's really easy to open. You don't need ventilation. You don't need a lot of staff. You just need to have a barista and a really nice coffee machine and you can go for business. And and it's also open at a time where the the restrictions have never affected. So coffee business is between 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. So every time we have lockdown, 6 to 10 is, which for a traditional restaurant is the most important time, for them is completely insignificant. So you see, say, one one area open eight to 10 coffee shops at the same time. So you're like this coffee mania will at some point implode because there's no way that these coffee shops could survive, but it looks like instant success. So people are like gravitating towards, oh, everyone's going to do takeaway. So I'm going to open all these frozen meat shops. And then I'm going to open all these takeaway only shops. But I see it more like maybe do 30, 50% takeaway, but don't bet all your money on takeaway. And first of all, I think I, I question for uh, uh, like entrepreneurs, is your dream to run a takeaway restaurant? If your dream is to run a takeaway restaurant for life, go do it. But if it's not, and you're not trying to be dominoes, don't look at what's works for six months. What will work in your life forever because it's like getting married right like do you marry a girl because it's six months during COVID it was fun or do you marry still marry a girl that you want to be with forever right so I think that's very important to define that's right I'm curious about these coffee shops because there's this really rich history of Hong Kong milk tea are are the coffee shops is it a separate thing or are they kind of drawing the audience over to coffee shops uh, uh, cha tangs are always doing very well. So every anything that relies on pure, because Hong Kong, I would have to say, even myself included, 
um, like Little Bow. Every time I used to go into Little Bow and work and I would be like, hey guys, is it your first time? They'll all like seven years in, they're like, yeah, it's my first time. I'm like, oh, there's amazing rotation of people that go through Hong Kong. I have friends that go to Hong Kong six times a year and I feel like I see them more frequently than I see my friends that live in Hong Kong and they consider Hong Kong their must stop. Yeah, the home away from home. It's such an international hub. I, find, I mean, I've found myself there more often than not. I miss it so much. Yeah, so, so it's crazy. And so it's actually most restaurants, maybe 50% of their guests might be transient, but they might be their VIPs that they might come back all the time. Maybe like, you know, the Nike crew in Portland, I see them three times a year. And so to me, that's my VIP, you know, but since that stopped, then it relies on purely local consumption. Then it needs to fit fit what they want, what's their spending power. And then especially, you know, even we had protests, people become very stuck to their neighborhood. If you think about it, if you just opened, reopen your area, you're going to try to go closer to where you are than trying to go very far. And, and so those little things affected the dynamics of restaurant openings now, because for locals, like that whole trend of coffee and being able to hold a coffee and be Instagrammable and for them to understand Western cuisine as in I, everyone loves brunch, right? So actually, if without the international market set, it's much harder to push, for example, a modern tasting menu of Argentinian-inspired Spanish, da, 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 because it's harder to understand for the local market set. And then maybe they get it but maybe they'll go once a year. But right now, because there's only that much people going out to eat, you want people to go to your restaurant three to five times a month. So you're like, how can I make that happen? Then if that happens, that means I need that. It must be an eggs benedict for brunch. It can't be some crazy like thingy because they might like it. Then what's next week, right? That's right. So that's why coffee shops work. Because, oh, yeah, I can eat an Eggs Benedict every weekend. That makes sense to me. And I'm willing to spend the same. It's not about money. It's more like, I, can I repeat this experience over and over again? So you're going to see the ones that are highly repeatable experience, able to survive this environment more. You guys know that I'm all about balancing my love of food and wine with fitness. And let's be real. Home fitness is here to stay. That's why I'm excited to have an Ergata digitally connected rower. It's the perfect choice for anyone looking for an efficient, engaging, full-body workout. But the thing I like most about this rower is the fact that it's visually stunning. Handcrafted in the U.S. from rich cherry wood, Ergata brings fitness into your home without having to drag that sterile gym aesthetic along with it. Their water rowing machine stores upright in a snap and transforms into a connected fitness device with personalized workouts and competitive races against other community members. So if you're looking to take control of your fitness from home, go see what I'm talking about at ergata.com. That's E-R-G-A-T-T-A.com. Yeah, I'm finding here specifically it's comfort foods. Like we're drawn to these really simple comfort foods. Pizza has been taking off like crazy and like really good pizza, like using really quality ingredients and fermenting the dough and really nice boccarones. It's crazy how many pizza shops have been not only performing really well, but also some opening during the pandemic, which is wild. But that coffee shop kind of reminds me of the same thing as it's scalable, it's applicable, it's something that's like an affordable luxury. It's a break from cooking in your own kitchen. It does well outside. And I think, you know, what, you, what you're doing too is like, it's sort of, it's the comfort food, but it's a, it's a little bit celebratory. It's fun. Um, I think those things have been doing really well. How, how have you been finding that you guys are doing now that you've found a rhythm? Um, um, well, I actually, you know, I, 
I love it so much because I think that be able to survive and learn and be able to do like right now, for example, we were so spoiled at Little Bow. I didn't do lunch until like the third year in because Yardbird taught me, you know, work-life balance. I'm just not going to do lunch and I'm just not going to open on Sundays, like just because, you know, life is good. And then so right. um, now it's like, what? Like we're going to do delivery. We're thinking about like, how do we do office like delivery? And then we're like, okay, we need to do frozen food. And then we're like, we just did like a seasonal uh, CNY uh, turnip cake. And, and, and it's a very Chinese thing. It's, it's like we, no Western person has ever ate it. It's like a mooncake, right? It's those things that it's like such a huge part about Chinese culture, but you serve it to a Western person. They're like, why would I eat a salted egg yolk inside a sweet cake like that sounds I think it's good well, I like that you're a super foodie we'll put you in a like one percent unicorn category okay <laughs> but, like, I appreciate that I feel like I just like got knighted or something and, like, you're, you sold a thousand of those cakes right like a thousand of them nice and so that really helped out February which really was bad because we it was short month and we had all these COVID restrictions and singularly the turnip cake saved our life and so so we went into high gear to produce it. And it's such a huge seasonal product. And suddenly I'm like, whoa, I've never considered doing traditional Chinese product because I've always been doing something really different. But then the moment I added 5% of creativity within a traditional product, they're like, whoa, who thought you could replace beetroot with turnip and then add yuzu zest to it? I was like, easy. Oh, that's yeah. like, 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 <laughs> Yuzu makes everything better. I think people want to see that. I, I love, there's a really great little company called Paper Please and it's in Chinatown and it's right next to this place called Today Starts Here, which is like amazing Taiwanese breakfast done by this chef who kind of just like elevates it little, a little bit and it uses really great purple rice and it's all these familiar things, but done really nicely. But these young designers, they made the traditional Lunar New Year envelopes, but with really cool design. They had one that was like a, a little boba with an ox on the front of it, you know, or some of them one had a Dodger hat and there were the red envelope that, you know, everyone gives. And I just, I think they did so well and they're like sustaining themselves off of these red envelopes. And I just, I love seeing that idea of taking something traditional, bringing it into the modern lens, but also through somebody who has a connection to that culture, like not a couple white girls making Mahjong tiles, which was like, <laughs> but I'm curious, I know sort of aside from the food, I saw that you've like taken to fitness during the quarantine. So tell me about that part of your journey during this time. One, like uh, that was, I keep calling them waves. So people have to need to dial back. Like this was probably around February, March last year. I was so stressed and, and I actually being in the moment, I knew I was stressed, but I didn't know looking back, like how stressful it was. This is when I just separated from a really long-term relationship and then protests happened and then it was COVID and I was just like, what is going on? And then at some point I had to go about 50% of my staff. And so I like sat through this meeting and I apologized to everyone. And then I remember I walked towards the gym and I was walking towards Central and I was like, oh, what is going on? And I was like really upset. And so so then I was like, okay, I need to do something that I have complete control of. And I quit smoking based on that. I remember like, like Happy Paradise was really at first not doing well because the concept was very avant-garde at that part. The first thing I did was like, I'm going to quit smoking. And I just always align it to something because I was like, if I can't quit smoking, what right do I have to do anything? Because quitting smoking is completely in control of myself. 
So I have never smoked again since, you know, year two, four years ago, I stopped smoking. And then now it was like my fitness. I was like, if I can't control my body, which is completely my own, it depends on what I eat, what I do, what I learn and what I exercise and how I schedule into my structure. And there's no outside factor about it. Like it's just, um, so I decided that was going to be my project. And then I went to this amazing gym. I found this amazing guy. And I think that the most important to make these things sustainable, you really must love, I'm a big people's person. So I love John, who is my private personal trainer. I love, I love talking to him. He's very encouraging. He never makes me feel like shitty about myself. He always, you know, that's very normal. So he went through like this four month process. Basically, I went, I have a before and after picture and people are like, no, the before and after picture was, I was like around 24% fat. Uh, really? Fat, You're so tiny. Yeah. yeah. So they call it skinny fat. Asians are a lot of skinny fat because we eat way too much carbs and like, you know, fatty food. Suppose. I'm so jealous. I want to be skinny fat. I'm just fat, fat. No. <laughs> And then at the at, and then after 16 weeks, I was like 13.5. And so I took this amazing wow. photo shoot. I never thought in my life that I would have abs, you know, and I was like, never. Because and so I joked when they went in, it's like, what's your goals? I was like, I want abs. And so I, like, I care about abs. I just thought it was my my mom was always we're known for our round belly. Like we're our family's known for skinny legs and skinny arms. We all have a belly. So to me, it was like accepted life. You know, that's the Fu and Chow family. You know, this is our life. <laughs> and yeah. so she obviously lied to me and she didn't know better about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was clearly a lot of to do with diet. And there was a process. Of course, people would fall off the wagon. Like I was so gung ho for four months. And I can attest to you, like last month, I did absolutely nothing. And then you have to understand like gyms are being shut down all the time. The first two times... He- after the gym was shut down, John and I would go outside. He would bring like 50 pounds of gear to, you know, a park and we would meet up and we'd do exercise together. Right. By the fifth time he like burnt out. I was like, what's, what happened to you the whole month? He's like, I just sat in my chair and did nothing for a whole month. And then at the last week before things were getting reopened, he just picked it back up. So I think it's also realistic to know that, you know, it's not that people you see that are perfect on Instagram, but they don't fall off the wagon, (laughs) but then you just pick it up back up. Yeah, exactly. Surrounded by people that you look forward to seeing. He'll poke me a little bit like, Hey, are you going to come back to the gym? I'm like, yeah, I want to see you. I want to go back to the gym. Wanting to go back is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's those people. I think that's so true. Like training with people that you enjoy being around and that have like great energy. And then, you know, cause you're all going to come into it someday where you're just, you know, Oh, I'm so tired or something shitty happened at work or whatever. And people pick you back up and vice versa. I really miss the gym. I really do. I've been doing, I have a, an ergata water rower, which I do love and I do have weights finally. So I fell off the wagon December. I started back again. I'm feeling much better and it has so much of a, an impact on my mental health. I just don't feel as good. I mean, there was obviously everything else that was going on that was kind of sinking me down, but I'm finding, I feel like my just mentally in so much more of a clear headspace. I think, you know, like it's, I, I cross relate a lot of things being part of a group of people that exercise is really important is when there were moments where he would like, you know, come check my fat. Like, so he'd be like, you know, like clamping my face and like clamping my fat. And there are days where, you know, as a woman, and I I think this is so interesting. 
I felt so shitty about myself. Like, I'm like, oh my God, like, I feel like I gained weight. I feel so flabby. I don't know what is. And then we would go in and physically check. And he's like, oh, you lost 2% fat. I was like, what? This is completely different from what I feel. So I thought it was very interesting to observe. I was observing the whole process of myself connecting to exercise and my feelings and what days I was the strongest, what days I felt really bad and what time of the period I was in. And then I realized that there's a lot of connectivity to everything, but what you feel might not be the reality, you know? And I think that's very interesting. And so when he was able to show me numbers and then say, may you're actually doing great what you're feeling is just a feeling, keep going. Or, or this fat that you feel is because everyone has this flab. He's like, look at me, is because when you deplete all the, the cellular level, when you lose some of the fat, and but it's still there, it feels like a blob. Because he says it went from hard fat to soft fat. And now this phase, you're going to feel really disgusting because it's just like jiggly fat content. This was when Save and Save Hong Kong FMB came along, which is this restaurateur group. So we have a WhatsApp group that has 600 uh, restaurateurs and now adding more to 1,000. So we get some shitty updates or like, oh, my God, there's like another restriction. How can we survive? We share this angst to the group like, oh, my God. And because I remember that day when I cried and I felt helpless. It wasn't that I was less helpless, but and then I joined a group like, mate, it's not your fault. It's not your individual fault. It's now more, it's out of your hands. This is happening to everyone. It made me feel better. You're not the only one who fell off the wagon. John fell off the wagon. I fell off the wagon. Knowing that, then you don't have to hide it, nor do you have to feel shitty. Like it's a, oh, everyone's doing so well. I'm the only person that fell off the wagon. And I think that's what people need now is to know that, hey, my restaurant sucks too. It's okay. Restaurateurs are the most hardworking people ever. Generally, people work 100 hours a week. Even if they say, I'm working 100 hours a week and, and like life can't get better, that's when we start to like, this is beyond our control. So we grouped a bunch of people together. We started putting ads into the newspaper because our voices were not heard. So we strategically made our voices heard and we asked for support collectively. We told the government what we wanted collectively. And that voice became much more powerful and made us less feel less helpless. Yeah. What was the result of that? Did they end up providing support financially for you guys or what was the outcome? I think the government gave us pretty good support. I have to say, of course, there we. it's not like we did great off of it. I think some didn't survive, but a lot of us did survive because of it, you know, and and I would have to say in that sense. But I think uh, some of the things that was hard was the decision-making on the restrictions were very, like one day they decided that there would be no more dine-in service, takeaway only. But they forgot that, you know, construction workers, people who are still working, have no place to eat. So then suddenly they saw photos of like blue-collar workers just kneeling on the street eating a box of rice and it looked so sad and because you couldn't eat in public places so because you couldn't be oh. eating publicly so then now they're like just like but I'm at work da, da, da. like what am I supposed to do right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. immediately within 24 hours they decide to go back and was like we're reopening 
for dine-in service yet, but you have to think about, you know, restaurants that prep their food. You know, they were like, we're going to do a two-week closure. And then the next day decided. And so the next day we had to like, you know, go back into the restaurant and prepare everything and do. So those were very, you know, crazy moments that led a lot of frustration to restaurants and uh, probably cost us a lot in terms of pivoting. But the government has, you know, in terms of subsidies have been pretty good. But I think especially suffering is the bar and clubs and then the gyms because they've enforced them to close throughout the whole pandemic. And I just didn't know how it was possible to survive, you know? Yeah, I I think that that is something I I know, obviously, restaurants need support. But I feel like, specifically bars, I feel like, you know, really great bartenders. It's like there hasn't really been as much noise made about that here. Yeah, Um, yeah, assistance as well. But yeah, I want to circle back for a moment to the fitness journey, because I think it's really great what you talked about the community, and specifically this messaging that we're told as women growing up women didn't want to be strong, at least in in American culture. It was like, you wanted to be really skinny. You wanted to look like a Barbie doll. You certainly didn't want muscular legs, arms, but it actually has helped me a lot in terms of finding my inner strength and confidence. I feel like it helps me work in teams better because I understand how to communicate because I played team sports. I think it's one of those things that I would encourage every young girl to do and women to do too, is just to kind of explore that strength do you find that that's something that's helping you now in your leadership at the restaurants? Oh, for sure. Like one, I played team sports when I was young. So I went to all girls school. So in, in, because we were like in the UK back in the day colonized. So netball was a big thing for us. Netball does not exist, I think in the US or not, but it definitely exists in Australia, UK and whatnot. It's kind of like soccer basketball, but it's like you only, you only toss the ball. You don't have like, um, uh, dribbling or whatnot and everyone has a section that they can play in and everyone has a distinct section and role but anyways interestingly I was part of a talk which was called take the podium by Nike and I remember one of the Nike leaders said do you know that every CEO female CEO has played some form of team sport in their childhood and I think that's really important to understand For sports, you're valued for your strength, you're valued, you're celebrated for your leadership, teamwork, and aggressiveness. To be able to take a ball, you get celebrated for it. Instead of, you know, in in other situations, they'll be like, well, that was a bit much, or or you were a little, you should be more apologetic, or you should be more mindful about this or that, or are you beautiful, are you skinny enough? And I think that people who play sports, when they're in a field that then they get celebrated, and not be afraid to show that kind of strength and power. I think that is really important for future leadership. When I feel really strong, I'm already confident. But when I remember I went on a six-hour hike, I go on these extreme hikes with Hong Kong Outsider. And one of the things that I wanted to overcome when I, there were two things. I, I wanted some reward to my fitness. I didn't just want it to look physically good. I wanted to achieve things that I before couldn't. I couldn't break through at work at that point because there was no breaking through at that point. It was just like surviving. So so there was no feel-good moment, really. You're just kind of like just doing things that feel shitty about yourself because you're like firing people and like doing this and that. And so then I went to Hong Kong Outsider. I was like, I re-saw everything about Hong Kong. I was going on these 1,000 you know, meter altitude within an hour and a half. And just like, 
And and they're like, hey, May, like, this is going to be a hard hike. And I was like, oh, that was okay. And I could remember <laughs> my legs were like, you know, the height would be maybe like 600 cm or whatever like and and i would have to like i felt like tomb raider like tomb raider i was like, <laughs> i was jumping like fully clothed into these waterfalls and that's awesome and i saw a hong kong that i never saw before and being inspired by that i went back to work like we need to relook at everything differently because if hong kong used to look like this to me and now it looks like these this amazing outdoor space that means we can relook at everything and so being fit enabled me to do that and then enabling me to do that I went to work more positive more energetic and more like I can take this you know because I felt Mm -hmm. strong so there was a sense of knowing people can say I used to think you'll never get abs oh actually if you want to you can get abs but when I decided I wanted to I literally even like went to the point where I was like John even before you do a shoot like what do you guys actually do because those abs are insane like may like every person who competes on those yeah bodybuilders they have a bodybuilder fake tan i was like what if you want to win or you want to do something figure out what people are actually doing no wonder you guys look like yeah like if not those like have you ever seen a very pale person having i was like you don't it's not not as obvious they're like shadows those shadows man they work wonders i'll tell you what yeah and then now i like noticed it i was like oh okay so I'll do a tag, but like I take the yeah. spray me up. <laughs> the important thing is like to be honest and be like, I did a tag. Yeah. Yes. I didn't That's right. for 24 hours before that shoot. Like that is the yeah. way, like you cannot pretend like, no, nah, like I eat everything I want. And like, you know, I don't even exercise and these abs are just natural. Like those people are lying. Like they, oh, I hate that shit. It's so toxic on Instagram. It's wild. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it leads people to, it's actually not hard to succeed, but we have to give clear path to people of actually how you succeeded. I think that was what fitness taught me. If you ate in the right way, you do things in the right way. You check yourself in the right way. Actually, it's highly achievable. And I achieved, I always exercised, but I never looked at my diet and I never considered certain things that John taught me and when he taught me those things and I like finally knew oh this is what it means I ate more than ever ate so much I was never hungry so people always thought especially girls like I used to go on a chocolate diet apple three-day apple diet eat only apples for three days like all this stuff right like you know and and I know high school like I'm sure every girl almost became bulimic or was you know it's just so much pressure Mm -hmm. about wanting to look good and now I'm like, oh, I, I take photos of my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They're like, you're eating so much. And I was like, yeah. But then I didn't know that I was eating the wrong food. I wasn't looking at how food made me feel. And now I know how food makes me feel. As a foodie, I eat certain foods to make me feel good. Oh, I'm so happy. Like, I, I just ate this amazing 10-course meal. But on the other side, now I, I, I eat food when I physically feel good. I know what food to eat when I want to be super creative for 12 hours. Like if we went to a fine dining dinner, right? Like lunch right now. And I went home, I'll be lethargic for about eight hours. I would want to, you know, couch potato with you on Netflix and I would not be productive. So that food would not be good for creativity or for feel good. If I drank a lot, the next day I'll be a little bit emotional. Right. And, and those are things that I didn't think about until after exercise, you know, 
Yeah, it's amazing. It really is fuel. It's like thinking about, you know, how you're fueling your engine, right? And like, there's nothing wrong, as you mentioned, there's nothing wrong with every once in a while having meals that are purely for pleasure or having a really great bottle of wine and like not feeling bad about having a second glass or, you know, going out with friends and doing something really special. But yeah, it definitely, when especially when you start to take care of your body and, and eat the foods that are going to fuel your body properly. I hate to use the word clean because I think that there's nothing dirty about food. Once you start to do that, then you really begin to realize the counter of that, which is the negative impact that the food and the fuel can have putting dirty fuel in your body, especially when you're working so hard. Like that's the thing right now I'm working to get back to that. I'm getting back into my fitness regimen, but it's like, you can work and work and work and work all you want, but unless you're eating right, that's only half of the equation. Every trainer will tell you that. It's like, you're not, dude, like you're not going to get the abs if you're eating all the carbs, <laughs> you know? I study a lot about, you know, sports. Women are now breaking a lot of world records and marathons. And I read this, I think, in a Time article or New York Times article, because women now excel in different countries. So they've built a marathon community and so now 40-year-old women are breaking records because they know they can relate to other women that are doing it globally. So I think what it is, is maybe we won't get inspiration directly around me. For example, how many female chefs are there globally? Five in my city. But then, you know, thanks to Asia's 50 best or world's 50 best, they put us together globally. Every time we meet up, they're like, hey, you guys all should have a meeting about, you know, how you individually are doing things to help the local community in your respective cities. And being able to have that camaraderie and also to be able to share our experiences and hardships has helped a lot. Like, you know, even us having this call, although you're in LA and I'm in Hong Kong, we inspire each other, right? And that is not limited to distance. And I think that people need to know to reach out to like-minded people that might be beyond the five friends that you met in high school or, or grade school or or your parents, unless your parents is like Bill Gates or like- no, I literally going to say Bill Gates. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like you can listen to other opinions. Like my mother, she didn't know much. And she'll say something yeah. that's very opinionated, very believable. And, and if you always believe in things that are just because they're in proximity of you, it's like be inspired farther. I think your mom probably must be so proud of the work that you're doing too for women, for members of the LGBTQ community. I think I know here in Los Angeles, it's been a really hard time for our gay community because so many of our hubs have just been shuttered. And for a lot of young kids who are coming out or needing a place that may not be their family as they're coming out, those places are closing and, and maybe never coming back. So I'm curious what that looks like where you are and, and sort of so the work you're doing. So you've been so instrumental in that community previously. What are you feeling and what are you seeing? I think it's interesting because, you know, Hong Kong is, because we talk a lot in terms of like, I talk to a lot of companies and on a higher level and the people that really care about LGBTQ uh, rights is um, more on the American company. So when you talk about like Fortune 500, they care because to them, it's an expat ideal, you know? So in the expat community, it feels very liberal because people are pushing agendas, but for the local community, there's a few dynamics that is quite challenging. Hong Kong is really expensive. So most people live at home. So imagine if you're in the closet, your parents don't know or your parents don't approve. Where, where would you meet? 
another person, right? And you can't invite them to your house. And then for for the community, there were not even that many bars in the first place because how rent was so expensive. And now that there's this challenge, it's hard to survive. There was just a revival of one or two bars that were very adamant about, you know, reviving a bit of that gay scene in Hong Kong. And those are being challenged right now because it's closed. It's been closed for months. Online DJing and trying to do a party online is really hard to to translate that energy because the energy of the room is the people. I I try to live a very transparent life. Uh, I have an amazing partner and we're supported by our families. And and I try to share as much online to see the possibility of, I, I see a lot of, you know, couples like gay couples that come to Little Bao because they see us as very public I'm very publicly gay. And so they see that they sometimes reach out to me because they see they're very happy to see me or to see that I'm living a life that's very public for them to whether to aspire to or like give them hope that like there's other people like them that are loved and accepted. And so that's the reality of Hong Kong. And recently there was also sad news where, you know, a partner passed away. And because we haven't legalized like gay marriage yet, he wasn't able to see his remains or go in to identify him. And so that is a current case that was just uh, on the news the past few days. The good thing is that the legal system is still very intact for us to fight the good fight on a more um, uh, higher level through litigation. But in terms of like a, a more traditional standpoint, there are individuals that are actively, you know, pushing gay marriage and thank God for Taiwan for setting the the bar for it. It's like looking to, you know, relative countries that have succeeded. And and I think we're getting closer. We have a team of people that are working very hard to make that happen. I think, you know, you being, like you said, so visible, open, successful, authentic, honestly who you are is one of the most powerful things that you can do because like you said showing the next generation this is possible you know it may not feel like it is now but it is possible and there is a really a bright future ahead so I think that's really powerful but it's interesting because uh Chinese dynamics is very different because the family dynamic is so strong I was in a uh discussion panel and it's a very western dialogue so oftentimes it's discussed in English and so last time when the first time I was at this uh I was AIA and like doing an internal panel discussion they invited you know their internal staff and we decided that time that we would do it in Cantonese Mm. that was a very small discussion very small crew but based on that discussion the person who was leading it she said two to three local women came out to him and they worked at the company for 10, 15 years and they had long-term partners, but no one knew. So being able to even communicate the same dialogue in different languages that give comfort to the people that you're talking to is so important. So even for me, like being able to speak in Cantonese as well as to speak in English, I think it really helps in terms of, I understand I want my mom's approval. That family dynamic of three generations that, you know, like Chinese people like all want to like, you know, always be together like this. And so to lose that connection would be very detrimental to to an LGBT member. And so I understand those challenges and be able to talk about those challenges. I feel so lucky that my parents 
Like my dad is 70. He never even mentioned it. He loves my partner so much. And he's always coming over, bringing her soup and like making sure that she's taken care of, asks about her. We get to go to all family dinners. And I, I told my mom and dad, I, I think in my mind all the time, it's like, I have to think about what my mom's role is. My mom wants to be received in her community as well. So if she has a gay daughter and she gets excommunicated from her community, she needs to defend it. And how do I help her defend it? Or how do I see her point of view? And when her generation, for example, I told my mom, I said, like, maybe we should go speak together about these things, about how you identify like my partner and me and how you've seen the light or whatever. It would be so instrumental for other mothers to look at you and be like, wow, if I love May's mom. She seems very respectable and loving and like have a great family dynamic and follows family traditions, but still able to love May. Then, wow, I should look back. So I think my mom had a friend that secretly reached out to her because we were so openly gay, secretly went to her and said, I think my son is gay, but like for 20 years, he's never had a girlfriend. He's only had guy friends. They go on holidays together. And but he never brought the partner home. So, so she doesn't even know how to start the conversation or wanting, she actually wants a closer bond with the son, but the son also will not expose her to it because she, he doesn't think she's ready for it right? or she would accept it. So she just like, like, this is my life. I'm always going to be in the closet and that's it. So there's that double dynamics. Like we should also, because being able to learn about maybe the first few years would be really hard because I don't think my mom, the first time she heard it, she cried, of course. And was like, why would you do this to us? What would your grandparents think if your dad knew she, your grandfather would die if he knew about this. And then I was like, okay, like that's a bit extreme. But then years later, then it just, you know, it always gets a bit better. Right. But I think oftentimes you'll be surprised by people's openness and kindness, you know, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's been so nice chatting with you, May. Uh, where can everybody follow along with you and everything you got going on? Follow me on Instagram at littlebowmay. I'm going to start a YouTube channel soon. And so I think Instagram is the best way to connect. Awesome. And then also Little Bow Restaurant and Happy Paradise Restaurant. Perfect. <laughs> Google that shit, guys. It's really good. Next time you are in Hong Kong or if you see her popping up in your city, which hopefully she will be as travel comes back, because it will be coming back sooner rather than later, make sure to hit her up. You will not regret it. Thank you so much, everybody. If you, Of course, feel free to follow me at Krista Simmons and Fork in the Road Media. Hey, you know what? You can also support me on Patreon. Apparently that's a thing. I didn't know, you know, I could be making money doing this whole thing. So if you guys want to support me, support me on Patreon. There's all kinds of special gifts there for you guys, um, exclusive content, etc. So we'll see you next week. Be sure to tune in next Friday. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you again, May. Bye.